So you turn to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12 in your Bibles. Americans love goats, without a doubt. <laughs> we debate it all the time. Who is the greatest of all time? Goats. Greatest basketball player of all time? I mean, that's pretty easy to answer. Michael's and everybody else. Uh, although I'm a little nervous if LeBron keeps doing this for about four or five more years. I'll put some doubt in some people's minds. Greatest movies of all time? Um, like I, I'd start with a list of 20 and just start with that. I mean, I, I don't even know where you would go from there. How do you possibly name the greatest movie ever? Um, someone asked me recently, the three most influential books in your life other than the Bible um, I think I gave them 12 books and 12 authors. I mean, how do you possibly narrow down something like that to, to three or even one? Well, Jesus gets a question like this that seems impossible to answer, but for him, it's quite easy. In Mark chapter 12, verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So, Father, we ask for your help this morning to see, to understand, to comprehend the wisdom, the truth, the reality of what's being um, spoken by Christ to this man. We thank you that you have preserved it for a couple of thousand years so that we hold in our hands the very word of God. We confess our inadequacy to obey it apart from your spirit, our inadequacy to believe it apart from your spirit, our inadequacy to be changed by it apart from your spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, and work in us. Do deep work. Do transformative work that makes a difference right here, right now, and when we leave here and live every day. For the glory of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. We are in the final week of the life of Jesus in this part of the Gospel of Mark. Tension is mounting and conflict is increasing between Jesus and the religious leaders. It began in chapter 11 when he went into, it actually began all the way back in chapter 2 when he began to confront them and they confronted him, but it really is intensifying in chapter 11. He goes into the temple, gets rid of the money changers and overturns their trade that was creating a wall between God and his people for them to come and worship God. And he, he, he just ends it, says it can't be like this. My father's house is a house of prayer. This is a place of worship. And then it continues into chapter 12 when he gives this parable that basically points his finger at the religious leaders and says, just as all of these evil people kill God's servants for all of these years, you are continuing that and you're going to kill the son, which is Christ. And then it intensified when he was confronted by the Pharisees and the Herodians. So we looked at that passage several weeks ago and they're trying to trap him, trick him to come into conflict with the Roman government. And Jesus, of course, with wisdom and intelligence and logic and mastery, just, just navigates right through all of that. And then it continued last week. We looked at the Sadducees, another group that came to try and trick him and trap him. And again, he exercises his divine authority as Messiah, reveals new truth, and also gives us hope beyond death. And then it's going to only intensify as we go through the rest of chapter 12 and into chapter 13. It's going to lead to their illegal arrest of Jesus, illegal trial of Jesus, charging him with blasphemy, handing him over to the Romans to be crucified, which was all part of God's sovereign plan. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It had to happen. 
So it's happening according to God's sovereign will. And we come to, in the midst of the animosity and this escalating tension, this encounter today between Jesus and this scribe. Now, the best way to think of a scribe is essentially to think of him as a lawyer. But his, his expertise was in the Old Testament law. Like he really knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, all the nuances and all the regulations. This scribe would be a part of the Sanhedrin and more than likely a Pharisee as well. But notice that he comes with a different tone and agenda. He doesn't come seeking to trap Jesus or trick Jesus or embarrass Jesus or expose him. He comes as an admirer of Jesus. He sees in verse 28 the disputes that Jesus was in with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians. And and seeing that he answered them well. Seeing that Jesus has been doing a good job. And, And this is going to... It seems as as though he's genuinely impressed with Jesus, and it's going to help us understand the interaction that Jesus has with him after Jesus answers his question. But he, like the others, begins with a question, and the question is a very common question that Jewish rabbis and teachers would be asked, which commandment is the most important commandment of all? Now, the Jewish religious leaders over the years had taken the Old Testament law and had codified it into 613 laws. 365 of them were negative, don't do this. 248 of them were positive, do this. And so it's, 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 it's hard to see in the English translations, but what the, the scribe is not, asking, is not asking Jesus to rank them 1 through 613, which one's on top. He's asking him, what is the essence of the law? Which command carries the most weight? Now, Jesus, this is how the Pharisees talked about the law. Which, which commands are weightier, more heavy, and more important? Which commands are lighter? And Jesus understood this. He referred to the, the least of these commands in Matthew 5, 19. And, and we understand this. Like in doctrine and theology, we talk about uh, some doctrines that are closed-hand issues. These are the things that are non-negotiable. We will die for these beliefs. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ is the way to salvation. The, the nature of Jesus is fully God, fully man. The, 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 the gospel and salvation only comes by grace through faith in Christ, not works. There's nothing about our salvation which we, with which we can boast. The Trinitarian nature of God. Um, the, the superiority of the scriptures as our authority. We, these are closed hand, the weighty doctrines that we hold to we would die for. But then there's a lot of open-hand doctrines, a lot of open-hand doctrines, where there's freedom, and there's room to maneuver, there's place for wisdom. And so this, this scribe is asking Jesus, what is the weightiest of the commands? What is the, the command that is the essence of the law? And rabbis would like to discuss this. There are stories about rabbis who would kind of stand around and flex their theological brains and and kind of admire each other and how they answer this question. Stories from before the time of Jesus and his incarnational ministry, a ministry where uh, a a rabbi would, would ask another rabbi, teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Torah meaning the first five books of the Bible. Teach it to me while I stand on one foot. Like, I can't stand on my foot very long, so give it to me in a, in a short, small paragraph. And then they would give their opinion. For instance, in that encounter, this rabbi said, What is harmful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is the commentary thereof. Now, this is known as the silver rule, the, the implication, the negative implication of the golden rule. Golden rule, do unto others as you have them do unto you. The silver rule is don't do to others that you don't want don't done to you. 
Or they would answer with other Old Testament passages like Psalm 15, the list of qualifications of the one who would ascend the holy hill. And it's just these lists of things that this person should be in order to get to God, which we realize we all fail at. Or it might be um, uh, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. That might be how a rabbi might, might answer. How Jesus answered, as far as we know, never been recorded before. No rabbi ever answered this question like this. But of course, it's exactly how Jesus would answer this question. In, in a unique way that's never been done before. So Jesus gives his answer beginning in verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, through Jesus' response and subsequent conversation with the scribe, we're going to see several truths about love. The first is this, the consuming nature of love. Jesus begins by first orienting the target of this love. The target of this love is the one true God. Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. Every single Jew would have agreed with that up until today even. There's only one God, one true God, the most high God. And he says that we are to love this God with four alls. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And we we sometimes make distinctions between those. For instance, we may say loving God with all your heart is loving him with the essence of who you are, the, the centrality of your thinking and affections. And loving God with all your soul is loving God with your desires and your feelings. And loving him with your mind is cognition, thinking, and understanding. And loving him with your strength is the power of your will, the might of your will. And so that's, it's okay to think about these different spheres of who we are, but don't, don't miss essentially what's being said here. We love God with all that we are. Like, like you can't uh, make distinctions where, well, today, God, I'm going to love you with my heart, but I don't really feel like loving you with my mind or my soul. I'm just going to let the heart check in today and do all the loving, and the soul and the mind, the strength is not going to check in. You can't do that. There's so much overlap in these four areas. So instead of trying to make distinctions in which one is which, just understand Jesus is saying we're to love the Lord our God with all that we are, hold nothing back, give all of ourselves to him. In every area of life, in every relationship, in every responsibility, with every emotion, every thought, every feeling, every core, every fiber of your being, every cell in your body is all devoted to him. There's no part of our life that we can say, well, this is for me. You can have the rest. This is, this is for me. This is a love of the Lord that is emotional, mental, volitional, commitment, choice, soul, and body. All of who you are should be engaged. Like it's not okay to dismiss any of the realms of what makes us human and say, well, you know, God, I'm not really a very emotional person. So I don't really have to engage my emotions and my love of God. Or, I don't really like to think or read, so I don't really have to love you with my mind, God. It all has to be engaged. Like, there, there is a place where maybe the emotions aren't there for a variety of reasons. And you might go through a season or a day or a part of a day where it does feel like just duty. Just like you're doing your best 
just to show up in a place like this. You're doing your best just to open your Bible and, and pray to the Lord. And maybe you don't even get that far. And it feels dry. There, there are places like that. There are times like that. There are seasons like that. But that's not where you stay. Like you should never be okay with that. If you stay there and it never engages your emotions, it never captivates and grips your heart. Like you show up in this building Sunday after Sunday or you, you do life with your missional community or your DNA group and you, you engage with your fellow believers and your heart is never moved. Like you're reading the Bible constantly, your heart is never moved, your emotions are never engaged. There's something wrong. There's something that's not right in your heart. Why are your emotions not engaging? Why are your affections not growing? Why is your love not intensifying? Because the love that God has given us, the love that God has created us to give Him is all-encompassing all that you are. We love God with all that we are. Now Jesus is quoting a very familiar Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy 6 called the Shema. That begins, that's a Hebrew word for listen, and that begins this passage in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, or rather hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. What's shocking for the scribe when Jesus is asked the most important commandment is Jesus doesn't go to the Ten Commandments or one of the other codified 613 commandments. He goes to the Shema, a Hebrew passage that was quoted twice a day by this pious Jewish scribe, written on small pieces of paper and carried around in small boxes that would be tied to their body, written on particular objects that would be around their doorposts because they interpreted literally what God told them to do in Deuteronomy 6. Jesus says, first, the essence of the law, the heart of the law was to do this, and there was no Old Testament passage they were more familiar with. For thousands of years, the Jews knew that the Lord wanted their love. It's not really shocking, is it? And can you imagine a husband and a wife who, um, can you imagine a husband and a wife who would be satisfied if one said to the other, honey, I love you with 98% of my heart. <coughs> Immediately, she would be like, whoa, hang on. What, where, the other 2%? What, who gets that? Well, that's just for me. Like, it wouldn't be okay with your spouse. It wouldn't be okay with your kids. Why would we think it'd be okay with God? Why would we think God would be okay with just part of our affections and part of our love when He's created us, designed us, and knows us inside and out? How much sillier for us to think that. God, I really love you when I'm here in this building and the music's playing and, and, and the sermon's going on. I'm hanging around people I love and the coffee tastes good. God, I really love you when I'm hanging out with the MC and we're eating good food and we're, we're playing games and we're having fun and sharing life together or my DNA group where I'm going close with brothers or sisters going close with sisters. I really love you when I'm reading my Bible or listening to a podcast or listening to music that I like or eating good food. I love you in those moments. Other than that, I kind of want to do my own thing. I want to have these areas of my life, like maybe when I turn on Netflix it's just for me. I'm in a relationship with this other person. This compartmentalized faith is rampant in the Western culture, a faith that only gives God part of ourselves. If it doesn't work with our spouse, if it doesn't work with our kids, it certainly doesn't work with God. And so assess yourself this morning and the totality of the love that you give the Lord. 
Is the Lord the all-consuming passion of your life? Do you have a deep, intense, abiding affection for the Lord? Are you loyal to Him with an exclusive love? It's a love for Him that nobody else has. Do you resist and oppose anyone or anything that seeks to dishonor Him? Are you zealous to defend His name? Do you enjoy spending time with the Lord? Do you do things that please Him and increase His joy and your joy? Do you brag on Him to others and talk about His goodness? Do you tell Him that you love Him? Do you sit and listen to Him say to you, I love you? Do you talk with Him as much as possible? James K.A. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, he said like this, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. He desires our love. He wants our love. That is the all-consuming nature of this love. Secondly, see the connection of this love of God with others. So we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment. But with true divine messianic authority, he doesn't just give one command. He gives two and ties them together and says, these are the greatest commandment together. And you can't blame him because Jesus knew that the, the two objects of our affection are two sides of the same coin. Loving God with all that you are and loving others go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. Look at a few passages that point this out. John 13, 34 through 35. After Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. I have loved you, demonstrated the love of God for you in the same way you are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how people know we are disciples of God. And how well we love one another. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If you say you love God, but do not love your brother, how can you say you love God? Even clearer, 1 John 4, 20-21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It is non-negotiable. To love God is to love your neighbor as yourself. They have to go hand in hand. Two sides of the same coin. All these passages make sense in light of what Jesus is saying here in Mark 12. Like you can see how Jesus taught this, never been taught like this before. No one's ever tied these two commands together like this. And the the disciples clearly embraced it because it flavors the rest of the New Testament church. 
all the epistles. But know that this was radical. You cannot love God and not love others, or you don't really love God. You cannot truly love others unless your love for them flows out of your love for God, which flows out of God's love for you. In other words, if your loving others doesn't flow from you first loving God, then your loving of others might replace your love for God and they become your God. And they become an idol. You love them too much, more than God. Loving others only comes in relation to and flowing from the love and adoration that we have for God. In fact, I demonstrate my love for God and how I love you, but I love him first and I love him most. And if I love him first and I love him most, then I'm going to love you best, the best way you need it. This is an essential balance that we need in the church to keep the pendulum from swinging into bad theology or methodology. Like there are some who so emphasize our love and devotion to God that they ignore or they underemphasize the love we have for each other. So you have this version of Christianity that's heavy on spiritual discipline, heavy on individual personal growth as a Christian. It's kind of a monastic way of life. Where I'm going to love God, study the Bible, fast, pray, have my personal spiritual development plan, memorize scripture. I'm going to become this spiritual theological giant. Look how well I can explain the nuances of theology and articulate the gospel. Be impressed by me. But it's not done with the heart to love others. It's not done in community. And it's not done to bring those far from God near to God. So it's not really loving God with all that you are. It's loving yourself. Look at how great I'm becoming in my own eyes. Why does it matter how well you can articulate the gospel if you don't love the people for whom the gospel was sent? Of course, some swing the pendulum too far the other way, and they just want to love people, serve people, be nice to people, but it's not flowing out of a love and devotion for the the one true Most High God. And so it's a lot of good works, but without a genuine, accurate knowledge of this Most High God, this one true God. And so we'll love people and be kind to them, but we'll never open our mouths and tell them why we're loving them. It's because of God's love for you. It's because of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. So basically, we're making their life more comfortable and pleasurable while they continue on a path cut off from a relationship with the God who made them and loves them. We're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, right? Jesus gives us this perfect balance by loving God with all that we are that leads to a love of others, thus proving how much we love God, demonstrating how much we love God. We love Him enough to also love others created in His image. So who are the others? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? Well, in the Jewish mindset, the others, the neighbors, are only other Jews, they clearly close-minded about this. And you know this is the famous story in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan where the scribe comes up, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story, and the hero of the story is the most hated person in the eyes of a Jew, a Samaritan. And that's, if you're supposed to love him, Jewish scribe, who are you not supposed to love? And so we know that, that loving our neighbors refers not just to the people that are easy to love, like family and brothers and sisters in Christ and people in the church, but Jesus says we're even supposed to love our enemies. In fact, he says, if you only love those who love you, what good are you doing? Everybody loves like that. But if you want to demonstrate a supernatural love, you will love even your enemies. 
So, so we love our family, biological family. We love our spiritual family, church family. We love even our enemies. Who, who's left? There's nobody left. We love everybody. And that doesn't mean that you're going to love everybody the same way, right? You don't have the same relationship with all these people. Just because you love them doesn't mean you trust them or give yourself the equal amount of time or, or give yourself in a trustworthy way to them. Like uh, loving your enemy might mean you just don't kill them. You forgive them. Don't hold a grudge against them. Loving your friend doesn't look the same as loving your spouse or loving your child. So there's different ways that this love is demonstrated, but there is still love. Like you are committed to seek their highest good. You are for them to know God and fully love God. And whatever God is doing in their life, God, show me so I can be a part of that to help that progress. This is this kind of love. And that gets into the third aspect of love, and that's the tangibleness of love. I don't think tangibleness is a word. I think it's made up, but love is tangible. How about that? Jesus said our love for God is consuming. There's a connection between our love of God and our love for each other. And he adds, you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what in the world does Jesus mean by that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Is he creating this idea of self-love? Love me some me? Did T.O. have it figured out? Is that, what, is that what Jesus is saying? As I love myself, so in the same way I need to love others, but I have to make, take care of myself first. Like, how do you balance that with dying to self, laying down your wants and desires, sacrificing for the good of others? How do you figure that out? Well, there, there is a healthy kind of self-love that recognizes that you yourself were created in the image of God. And you are worthy, therefore, of God's affection, God's love, God's sacrifice, and His Son, Jesus. Yes, we also recognize we are sinful and in desperate need of salvation. But if you take your sin nature and depravity to such an extreme so you don't see that you are an image bearer worthy of God's affection and love, then you've taken it too far. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Yes, we are the wretches that God's amazing grace fell on. But we are the wretches that God's amazing grace fell on. We get to experience this. We are worth that because we are image bearers of God that have been cut off from God by sin and He came after us to bring us back, to turn rebels back into worshipers and to fulfill His creative design in us, to restore the image of God in us, Colossians 3. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That world includes you. He loves you. Therefore, there is a natural love of self. You certainly don't hate yourself. You might hate the sin that you see in you. But you don't hate the image of God that you bear. You don't hate the identity that he's given you. Or else you're, you're in sin. You need to repent of that. But this self-love is now turned to see the others, see others and see their needs. So Philippians 2, 3-4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not, uh, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You do look to your own interests. You take care of your needs. You feed yourself. You clothe yourself. You care about yourself. But you don't stop there. You also look to others. Self is where you start. Self is not where you end. You love your neighbor and care about their needs in the same way you love yourself and care about your needs. 
So, so what does this look like? Well, it's interesting because when Jesus says this, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting Leviticus 19. If you go to Leviticus 19, you see all kinds of tangible ways in that context that show you practical pictures of how this could look. Uh, verse 10 of Le- Leviticus 19, you care for the poor. Verse 11, you don't steal. Verse 11, you don't lie. You're fair in business dealings. You care for the blind. You deal justly with all. You avoid slander. You don't jeopardize the life of your neighbor. You don't harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his and your own good. Don't take revenge or bear a grudge against others. That's just in one small section that talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. Like how transformative would that be if we loved each other in that way? If we loved our neighbors, literally neighbors in that way, our co-workers in that way. How transformative would that be in our city? You can talk all day about how much you love your neighbor, how you feel about your neighbor, but in the end, how does your neighbor know you love them? What do you do? What do you do? How committed are you to their highest good? John, 1 John 3, let us not love in word and talk. Let's quit bumping our gums about how much we love people. What do you do? Let's be word, let's love in deed and in truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Like, Guys, I don't think we really need to overthink this. I don't think it's nearly as hard as we make it. Loving others is as simple as doing loving things to them, for them, with them. I know it can be tricky because we don't really always know what is a loving thing for someone. And we all have stuff in our house that we've been given, that was given in love, and we didn't really want it or need it. So it just kind of sits in our house. Unless it's in good shape, then we can love somebody else with it, right? And that, that, that's okay, but because you love them, you don't spit on it, you don't scorn or ridicule them. Why'd you give me that? I didn't want that. I, I love you. Thank you for this gift of love. Even though in the back of your mind, you know, I didn't really want that. You, you show grace and love to them as they attempt to love you. And then you develop that relationship with them so they'll know you better and know what you really love and what really speaks love to you. Kind words. Gifts given, time spent, grace shown, physical affection, loving rebukes, nice things done for people, being vulnerable and transparent, letting people in to love you, receiving love, being embraced, letting love cover a multitude of sins, and on and on we can go, fleshing out what this love looks like practically and tangibly. But it's not an idea. It's not just a feeling. It's what you do. It's what you do. And lastly, the importance of love. Obviously, love is important because Jesus says the greatest commandment, the essence of the law. But notice the reaction of the man. He he got it. And this man was a genuine admirer and seeker of truth. Verse 32. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have said well, some translations say. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
repeating basically to Jesus what he said and referencing these Old Testament ideas and then saying this important thing at the end. This is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This was an idea that was common in the Old Testament. The Jewish people knew in the Old Testament, it came through the mouth of the prophets over and over, that God was not interested in their routine, ritualistic, going through the motions relationship with him. He was not interested in them coming over and over and over, year after year, just checking the box without having a heart of love toward him and others. Listen to how Micah put it, Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. They knew. They knew what God desired and what God wanted. Jesus repeated this idea in his rebuke of the Jewish religious leaders in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. There was a place in their life for obeying the Old Testament law, but not to the extent that they don't show love, mercy and justice and grace and humility to others. That these things not characterize their relationship with God. God is not as interested in what you do for Him as much as He wants the devotion and affection of your heart. That is essential. Like you can check all of the religious ministry theological boxes. You can be incredibly busy doing good works. But without love... Paul says this in his chapter to the Corinthians on love. He opens with these words in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away, away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. That's a pretty impressive resume. Speaking in the tongues of men and angels, having prophetic powers, understanding mysteries and knowledge, having faith to move mountains, giving away all that you have, giving up your life, delivering your body to be burned, being a martyr. That person you could write books about and make movies about. That person would be idolized in many churches. Paul says, if you do all of that without love, you have done nothing. Not a little bit, not halfway there, nothing. You can come every Sunday. You can lead a missional community. You can plant a missional community. You could be an elder in this church. You can plant churches. You can do all of these amazing things, write books, Travel the world, sharing the gospel to all the unreached people groups. And if you don't do it with love, you've done nothing. 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 How much more important can love be? You you see this in the conversation with the scribe. Verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far 
from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The scribe, an expert in the Old Testament law, he knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, theological knowledge abounding, highly devoted to obeying the law, genuinely admiring Jesus and asking good questions. And despite all of this religious devotion and knowledge, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He almost got it, but not quite. Almost there, but it's not enough. And the kingdom of God, you're either in or you're not. Close is not enough. You know, you're in or you're not in. There's eternal joy in the presence of God, or there's eternal condemnation away from the presence of God. You're God's people or you're not God's people. It's not kind of in or kind of out. And who knows how many people live in our city, live in the Bible Belt South. Lots of religious works and religious knowledge, but no love of God, no love of each other. So while they may not be far from the kingdom, they are not in the kingdom. This is the importance of love as a defining quality. Love of God and love of neighbor. John Wesley was in a similar state as this scribe. If you don't know John, his brother Charles would, would found what would later become the Methodist denomination. John was born in 1703 in England. By the age of 23, he was a professor of Greek and logic at a local college, Lincoln College. By the age of 25, he was ordained as a uh, priest in the Church of England. Him and Charles and this other uh, young preacher named George Whitfield would get together and have meetings and devotions together. They would pray together. They would fast together. They incredibly spiritually devoted to the Lord and to each other. They'd visit the sick, visit prisons, visit orphans, uh, study the Greek New Testament together, just on and on and on. And eventually John would come to America uh, on a short-term mission trip to reach Native Americans in the state of Georgia. And John would get back on a boat and go back home and say it was an utter failure. In fact, he would say, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? Challenged by the simple faith of the Moravian Christians he had spent time with, he comes back to England, he finds one of their leaders, he's, he's trying to find the salvation that he knew he was missing despite all of his religious accomplishments. And on the morning of May 24th, 1738, Wesley just flipped open his Bible and his eyes fell on Mark 12, 34. Where Jesus said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Later that night, he goes to society meeting at Aldersgate Street and listen to his words. He said someone was reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistle of Romans around 845 while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Just like the scribe, theological knowledge, religious devotion were not enough to get them in the kingdom. Love for God, love for others was missing. They were not far, but close isn't enough when it comes to the kingdom of God. And you may be like me when you're confronted with this, this truth, this reality, this passage. You begin to look at your own life. And while certainly I'm grateful for some evidences where God's grace has helped me to love him and love others, I also see widespread failure. 
So much room for growth. Maybe even you feel more like the scribe or Wesley, where you see this chasm of lovelessness that is actually evidence that you are not in the kingdom, even though you may be close. Like you seriously, the Spirit of God may be speaking to you this morning and, and showing you you're not in the kingdom. Despite your accomplishments, despite what you know, you're not really mine. Like, don't run from that. It is a God-ordained, Holy Spirit-inspired moment where God is doing work in you. And He's calling you to Himself. He's wooing you in His love. He's calling you to see Him. See that you're a sinner, yes, but don't stay there. See His love for you, that Jesus would willingly, lovingly come and die for your sins. To redeem you and adopt you into His family forever. And call out to him, just like Wesley did. Believe in him. Trust in Jesus for salvation. Understand that the love that Jesus says that we're supposed to show to God and to others is not a love that we conjure up, that we create. Like when you're confronted with your sinfulness this morning and your lack of love for God and your lack of love for others. And that's everybody in here. There's not a person in this room that can say, yeah, 100% of the time, I'm all in. God has all of me all the time. Nobody. That person doesn't exist except for Jesus. So when you see the reality of your failure, the first place to go is not, okay, what can I do to do, uh, do, to do better? What, what three steps can I take? What 10 things can I do? How can I practically show more? I'm going to write some cards when I get home. I'm going to call this person. I'm going to bring a meal to somebody tonight. I'm going to love. I'm going to read my Bible all afternoon. Don't immediately go there. Do more, try harder, fix yourself. Doesn't work. You'll never do enough. You'll never be enough. The first place that you go is to see Jesus. See the source of this love in God. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In love, before we were ever created, in eternity past, before anything was created, he knew you and called you and created you to know him and be adopted into his family. For John three sixteen, God so loved the world. How did he love the world? In what way did he love the world? He sent his only son, to die so that you would not have to die and have everlasting life. 1 John 4, 8 through 11. Scott read this earlier. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to take our place, to absorb the wrath of God for us. Because, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The source of this love begins with God and his love for you. And even the love that we are to demonstrate to each other flows from God. It doesn't originate in us. Romans 5.5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who who has been given to us. The love we are to express does not originate with us but with God. So we are more and more the conduit and the channel for God's love to others. 
Like you go into situations where you have to love somebody who's hard to love. Don't show your hands, but how many people have people like that in our life? Everybody. I got to love this person. I work with them. I live with them. They're my family. I can't get away from them because they're family. And I got to love them. And you can actually go to your father in heaven and say, all right, father, you have given me love. You loved me before I ever loved you. You put your love in me for them. And I'm just going to channel it to them. And you would be amazed at how he allows you to love someone who is difficult to love. If you don't have that person in your life, that means you're that person for everybody else. And we're all praying that before we hang out with you. And you see the lack of love in your life for God and others. The first place you go is not, how can I fix myself? But go and see Jesus. See the Father's love for you. Continually, daily, ongoingly. See the price he was willing to pay to redeem you. And Jesus didn't do it begrudgingly. I got to do this. He did it willingly and lovingly to obey his Father and purchase our redemption. Set your mind and heart on Christ. See his loving sacrifice and let his love fill your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then just give it back to him. Give back to him what he's already given to you. That's it. That's all we have to do. And then give it away to others freely. Even if they don't reciprocate it, we just give it away. Like like candy from a, a parade float. Just give it away. Have fun giving it away. Because he's going to give you all you need to give more away to others. That's the love he has for you. Love of a father for a child. Lavish, extravagant, overwhelming. Enjoy it. Give it back to him and share it with others. If you're here this morning and you're realizing you don't have that love in you because you've never truly come alive in Christ, please come see uh, one of us before you leave. You can talk to just about anybody here and they can walk you through the gospel. But you can certainly see me or Kendrick sitting in the back or Scott um, later on. would love to go eat lunch with you and tell you more about who this amazing Jesus is in his gospel. Father, we're so grateful for your grace, mercy, and love that you would love us, the wretched. But yet you do love us. And so I, I thank you and on behalf of others in this room, we, we praise you with our lips. We praise you in song. We praise you in prayer. We praise you with the devotion of our lives. We praise you in gifts of tithes and offerings. We praise you for how you have loved us so freely, willingly, extravagantly. And we ask you to help us love others in the same way, just to give away your love. Father, I pray for anyone who might be here who's never truly come alive to this love. Their eyes have never been opened to how amazing this love is. They've never come alive in Christ. May you save them today. That they would call out, believe in Jesus, and be transformed by your love. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.